week. <laughs> uh, I couldn't hear it, but I saw the time. I skipped forward and thought, well, that was over an hour. So if I take 55 minutes, you lot had a good day at church, didn't it? If we look back through history, um, we can see that it's been defined by... And it's good, sorry, it's good to be home. It's good to be... I really did feel like this is one of my homes. Good to see your faces, most of you. Um, we you saying Raymond? <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. I can only pick on Raymond, really, because he picks on me too. If we look back through history, um, we can see that it's been defined at times by encounters, interactions that people have made with other people, happenstance, which I think is a great word, um, chance meetings. For example, in 1874, Alexander Graham Bell met Thomas Watson in a shop. And out of that happenstance, the telephone was born. Mac and the Apple computer and our iPhones and the iPad that I'm preaching from today was born. In 1976, Shelley met John in a butcher shop in Balham. And in 1979, the world changed forever, Adam Boyce was born. <laughs> I've used that before, you know, and it landed better in North London. There's something, something going on there, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. It's cool. Yeah, I'm back in South. I've got, the only, I've got dual citizenship, so I was born in South London, and I, and I live in North London. So, no, I've got it. I've got it. I don't even need passports. Let me preach, Harry. Encounters change the course of history. And throughout the Gospels, we learn about people meeting and encountering um, Jesus. Some of them encountered him, and they would leave feeling discouraged. Some would leave feeling healed. Over the last 2,000 years, all over the world, people have been encountering Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And for most of them, their lives have been changed forever. Amen? Amen. So today we're looking at chapter 5 of Luke's Gospel. Through this chapter we see examples of people encountering Jesus, his authority and his power. I'm going to take a look at four scenes I've split it up in. Well, it wasn't really me. There's the splits in the Bible that I've used in the chapter. By the lake, in the town, in the house, on the road, then at the banquet. That's our four um, scenes if this was an episode of a Netflix series. And the first of our scenes, it involves a man named Simon or Peter, as Jesus will nickname him, a fisherman who lived by the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, as it's commonly known. But before we look at his chunk of our story, let me pray. Father God, thank you for this morning, and Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit that I can just feel in the room just moving hearts and pointing them towards you. So Lord, continue to do that, we pray, we plead. I hope you find us at your feet, Lord, um, waiting to marvel on your word and be changed by it. And may the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, our Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read, because there's, lots, there's a whole chapter to get through. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw that at the water's edge, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. 
He got into, the boat, got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little more from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled up their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So up until now, Luke has described Jesus moving from place to place, miracle to miracle, encounter to encounter, pretty much alone. He meets lots of people on his travels. He spends time with them. But here in chapter 5, we're presented with Jesus' first recruitment driver, you could say, for his first and his closest disciples who are going to journey with Jesus throughout his ministry and ultimately to his death on the cross and beyond. And there's a lot going on in this scene. You've got the crowd surrounding Jesus as they listen to the words, the word of God we we just read. Listen to Jesus. You've got Simon and his fishermen people cleaning their nets, minding their business, maybe listening to Jesus while they were working. I don't think Simon Peter doesn't care about what Jesus is saying, but he's clearly disconnected from it. He's distracted, he's preoccupied with the task at hand, with his busyness. Remember, he's had a bad night at the office. They were out all night, didn't catch one single fish. Disappointed, frustrated, possibly feeling worried maybe that a whole night's fishing has gone by with no catch. And I'm going to guess that this morning there's some of us here that might be a bit distracted. Maybe even disinterested, maybe preoccupied with stuff that we've come here with today in our hearts and our minds. And that was Peter when he came across Jesus this morning by the lake. He more than likely just wanted to get his job done and go home. I'm not going to say I can relate. Oh, that was supposed to be a joke as well. All right, I'm going to stop with the jokes. I'm just going to be serious for once. And when I'm serious, people complain. That's the funny thing. They say, oh, who was that Adam up there preaching so serious? That wasn't my brother. But I'm going to be serious. I'm going to be an Anglican. Jesus, Jesus realizes the crowds are getting a bit close for comfort. So seeing the two big empty boats, he decides to teach from one of them. The boat he climbs in happens to belong to Simon Peter, and he tells Simon Peter to take the boat out a bit further from the land. He basically stops Peter from ending his day's work, telling Peter he's going to turn his boat into basically a floating lectern. And while Peter is trying to mind his business, clean his nets and get home, Jesus then takes it a step further, and when he had finished speaking, we read, he said to Simon, let's go out further into the lake where the water's deep. Peter's just finished washing his nets, and then along comes Jesus, telling him to put them back out where they are, not close to, sorry, not where they are, not close to the shore where they would normally fish. Jesus is telling him to let down his nets in the deep water in the middle of the lake. 
He wants Peter to row there. It's about 13 miles long, this lake, eight miles wide. And he wants Peter to row, row out into the middle of this lake and let down his nets. This would have been going against Peter's professional judgment because he's a professional fisherman. He would normally fish nearer the shore. It would normally be at night. And that's because at night the fish they can't really see the nets. That's when they're active and they're sort of swimming around. And then along comes this carpenter, preaching guy from Nazareth, and he's basically trying to teach him how to fish. Carpenter trying to teach a professional fisherman how to fish, who's exhausted, who's disappointed, who's frustrated, and maybe now even feeling a bit isolated because he's on this boat in the middle of this lake with this carpenter, Jesus guy. But can you see what Jesus is up to here with Peter? And he might just be trying to do the same with us this morning. Or you might have experienced this with Jesus before. He's trying to get Peter away from the crowds of people, away from the busyness, away from the noise, so that it's just him and Peter in this boat. If you've ever sat in a boat in the middle of a lake, I did it once when I went to the country where my, in Essex where my cousins used to live. And it can be eerie, especially when, if you're far into the lake and there's not many boats around. You can almost you really start to pay attention to the noise around you, the birds, the, the, the water. And... We don't need to get in a boat and sail out into the middle of a sea to spend some time with Jesus, to be in his presence. We don't need to climb a mountain, as we're going to learn in chapter 9, like Peter did, with the transfiguration, to feel God's presence. Because sometimes, like Peter, on this day... We're looking at, it's not until we're exhausted and we're at the end of our tether when we're down to nothing or we've filled, we've filled our lives with so much of our business that that's when we need to hear God's voice. His call, his presence. And I feel like I'm madly digressing here and time is already drifting. Jesus tells Peter to go into the middle of this lake in the middle of the day, put down his nets. Peter responds, Master, we... We've worked all night and we didn't catch anything. But okay, because it's you, because you say so, I'm going to drop my nets. Can you imagine the scene? So he's left all of his fishermen friends at the shore. They're probably looking up thinking, why has Peter gone into the middle of this lake? And why is he putting his nets down? So he could even be feeling like a bit of a, a bit embarrassed, like, what are they thinking? They're probably thinking, I'm a, I'm a madman, like, I've, I've had enough, like, what the bun and cheese is going on over there. But guys, what's really going on here is obedience. Because despite all of that, Jesus has asked him to do something and he's obeyed him and he's done it. He's not sure why he's there doing this madman mission in this lonely place at this weird time with people looking on, etc., etc. But this moment, brothers and sisters, changes life forever. If he had said no, let's not go there because some might say he couldn't have said no because God, anyway, that ain't the sermon today. But if he had said no, he would never have become a disciple or the journey would have been different. And that disciple is who Jesus built his church on. And that's why we're here today, because he said yes, because he was obedient to God, because we are the church. Amen. This is our God. He takes us out of our comfort zone. He meets us at our low, frustrated, busy, sometimes empty moments, and he calls us to follow him again and again and again and again. 
for, for one or some of us here today, it might be for the first time, and we're ignoring that call. Or it's a repeated call, because he knows that we've drifted from him out into a lake. I could make a metaphor out of it, but I can't be bothered. When Jesus calls us into something, to do something, to go in a certain direction, for the most part, we can't be telling ourselves, oh, sort of metaphorically, it's cool. I know there's going to be loads of fish under the boat because God is God. Because a lot of the time, like Peter, we just don't know how things are going to turn out. I don't know how the time is going to turn out today. I've got to stop going on about it. But we know that God is love. Amen? Amen. And that love guarantees that whatever he's calling us to leading us from, into, is good. There's no, it's, an abs- it's good. It's going to be good. You might not, we might be, not be able to see it, but it's going to be good. Surprise, surprise, when they had done so, they caught so much fish, they had to call their mates in the other boats to come and help them. I paraphrase that slightly. They caught so much fish that the boats were sinking. At first glance, Peter's response is a bit baffling. He's just won the fish lottery. Like he's just done the biggest catch of his life. And what kind of way is this to him for him to what kind of way is this for him to respond to a miracle? You think he'd be doing well, maybe not doing star jumps in a boat, but you know, celebrating. How did this miraculous event make Peter realise his sinfulness? To answer that, we need to look back in time. We read of Simon Peter's first encounter with Jesus in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. Simon Peter's brother Andrew was the first of the two of them to meet Jesus. Andrew then goes and finds his brother Simon, brings him to meet Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of John. You will now be called Peter. Jesus had this thing about renaming people. Be careful. Peter had been Jesus' disciple from this point on. He committed himself to following Jesus. But in that year, even though his basic needs would have been met, he probably didn't make a lot of money. So by the time we get to Luke's account in chapter 5, Peter's returned to fishing. A man's got to work. You might be thinking, provide for his family, put food on the table. So he stops following Jesus. Doesn't stop believing in Jesus, but he stops following Jesus. We're not talking backsliding or denouncing his faith or, or, or anything like that. But it seems when we catch up with him in chapter 5, he's not enjoying his fishing like he used to. Not having much success, coming back empty-handed or empty-netted. And on one of these occasions, Jesus rocks up in, in, in the mor- one morning, starts teaching, takes Simon out fishing afterwards, and they catch enough fish to sink the boat. And it's in this moment that he realises that God supplies for his every need. He's also perhaps confronted with his attitude towards God. He might have felt angry, resentful, and perhaps even bitter towards Jesus for asking him to go back out and fish. It's like me finishing my sermon, and I'm going to the car. And if I'm like, oh, bruv, 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 come, come, because next week there's something in the building, I just got a text message, do chapter six for me. I would laugh, I'd laugh, he's never heard. But could you imagine... The way I didn't get sleep last night as well. <laughs> but he's just had a night of no sleep. And he's been asked to go and fish, fish again. So he could have been feeling all those ways towards Jesus. He's human. 
Luke doesn't explain what was going through Peter's mind and heart for him to tell Jesus to depart from him and to state that he's a sinful man. But likely it was the kind of thoughts um, that I've just listed and the kind of feelings I've just listed that made him feel compelled to confess to Jesus because family, making someone or something more important in our lives than Jesus is a sin. It's idolatry. But it is as simple as that. And that's what Peter was probably realising here. He, he put his work, his fishing, and maybe even providing for his family before, ahead of following Jesus and dedicating his life to him. But only is there nothing more important than us following Jesus. Nothing should be and is more rewarding than us following, truly following Jesus. Blindly following Jesus sometimes. Brothers and sisters, what are we chasing? Some of us might be chasing nothing wrong with a pay rise. Could do with one. If there's anybody in the room that can influence pay rises at London City Mission. <laughs> Hear my prayer. I'm joking, I'm happy. I'm joking. I forget you don't record it. Actually, no, because if, if the mic ain't working again, ain't that, but then I might just stitch myself up. Or a bigger house or a nicer car. Or to, fit, or, to, or to fit in with people, which I'm struggling to do as usual. Or to feel accepted. There's something that we might be chasing. But they can never come close. Whatever it is we might be chasing can never come close to the second half of verse 10. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Jesus has given them the, the, the catch of a lifetime. Who knows how much that fish would have been worth to them. Life-changing stuff. Might even be able to buy another boat or a better boat, upgrade the boat, get a mo- motor in the boat or something. New oars. But catching people for God's kingdom is more exciting. So they pulled up their boats, up on the shore, left everything... And they followed him. Can I challenge us this week, brothers and sisters, um, that we'll spend some time asking the Lord, what is it that we value more than him? I'm not going to list things that it could be. But even if we value what I say as a father of five, if we value our children more than we value the Lord, we need to pray about that. Because we should value nothing or nobody more than Jesus. Amen. Scene two, in the town. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. 
Although Jesus has gone around healing people from stuff like Simon's mother-in-law with fever, we, well, I didn't hear it last week, but you, you guys heard last week, or the many others, um, he healed that, that same evening. Luke tells us here the first of two stories that have both religious and spiritual, or religious spiritual implications for the men who are, who are healed. First up is a man suffering from leprosy. And back in them times, those times, leprosy was thought of as a contagious, incurable disease. And someone who had leprosy would have been segregated from society. And this goes way back to the instructions given in Leviticus 13, where it reads, but whenever raw flesh appears on them, they will be unclean. When the priest sees the raw flesh, he shall pronounce them unclean. The raw flesh is unclean. They have a defiling disease. So this man would have been cut off from his people. Some people would even have had the view that someone catching leprosy, it was the result of a sin that they'd committed or some sort of moral corruption. So it, wouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us that when this man hears of Jesus' arrival to his town, the one who's been going around healing many people, so he would have heard, when he sees Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And the leper, he doesn't ask Jesus to intervene on his behalf to God like a priest. He doesn't go to him like a priest and say, oh, please, can you ask God to heal me? Because we can assume from his question that he believes that Jesus himself has the power to heal him. Can any of us relate to this? Not having leprosy and falling to your face and asking Jesus to heal you. But that feeling of isolation, being cut off, alone perhaps in your world, in your, in your life. Not, maybe not now, maybe in the past. Maybe feeling unclean because of something that you've done um, or experienced. Going to Jesus for healing, knowing that he is the only one who can heal you. He's the only one that you can approach. Has there been a point in your life when you felt broken, down to nothing, but only Jesus? That's what this guy is feeling. I'm feeling like my iPad is broken because it keeps unlocking still. I don't know why that's happening. Let's done it again. This man had leprosy. Um... Even to appear, why is it doing that? I'm going to hold it. Even to appear amongst healthy people, he's taken a chance. Because like, he's, he's supposed to be on the, on the, he's not supposed to come out and move. Him. He, he, he couldn't come in here. Mm-mm. Leprosy would be the last of his problems. Jesus' response is it's nothing long. Be clean. And as we read, the disease left him there and then straight away. We know Jesus has done all all kind of, I was going to say weird, maybe that's a bit rude, but different ways of of healing people. We know know about the spit and the eye and 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 there was a preacher that tried to imitate that still and I I took him off Instagram because I thought it was wild. Um, (laughs) Very wild. We don't do them things here, no. We don't know we don't do them things here. But Jesus was very simple with it. It was there and then it was instant. Jesus remembered, this man is a Jewish man. Jesus is an Israelite, remember. 
He knew this guy couldn't just go skipping along healed and bragging about it. He knew what had to happen as a Jewish man. Jesus tells him, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for you, for your cleansing, as a testimony to them. This is the latter part of what we just read from Leviticus. It reads, if the raw, if the raw flesh changes and turns white, they must go to the priest. The priest is to examine them, and if the sores have turned white, the priest shall pronounce the affected person clean, then they will be clean. Many scholars think that Jesus wanted this man to go and tell the priest so that they would have an eyewitness account to, you know, of God working through Jesus, of his power. But as we read, the guy ignores Jesus, and as soon as he leaves Jesus' presence, he probably just went and started spreading the news about what, what had happened to him. And people would have seen it, it would have been evident, people would have known this leper guy, and suddenly... He's clean, cleaner than clean, like olive oil skin. He's green clean. Could you imagine having leprosy? And then like that, it's, it's, that's better than a new shave feeling. Guys, you can relate when you've had that, that crisp. No, I can't relate. It's been a while, but I took it down the other day. That's, that's the nearest I got to it. Anyway, he starts spreading the, the news of his healing, or it starts spreading somehow. Crowds of people keep coming to Jesus to, to be healed from their sicknesses. Brothers and sisters, how do we respond when God gets us through something? Heals us from something, restores us from something. Do we keep it to ourselves or do we use it as a testimony to the power of God working in our lives? Rhetorical. Scene three, in the house. Up until now, Jesus' healings have gone unchallenged by the Pharisees, pretty much, and, and celebrated by the masses, as we read in the last chapter. This next scene is strategic because it shows the beginning of the opposition that was to build up against Jesus and would eventually lead to his arrest, his trial, and his execution. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carry, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who, who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take him out, go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Jesus is in the house. We don't know whose house it is. Trying to do a bit of research. Nothing came up, funny enough. And he's surrounded by loads of these religious bigwigs, these Pharisees and these teachers of the law. 
And we can assume it was, it was quite a few of them because they came from all these different villages and, and towns, as we read. We can assume that Jesus had already been healing people, maybe, up to this point. As we read, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And the house was, was so full that they had to lower these people down um, through the roof. Most homes back then in Palestine had a flat roof. Don't ask me why. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do that much research. But they had a, they had a flat roof. And you, you could go upstairs to get, into, to get to this flat roof. And it would have been made of sort of like thatch roof, sort of hay and whatever thatch is made of, and maybe some tiles. We aren't told the exact details of how they managed to, to, to do this. But you could imagine it caused a bit of... Well, no, I mean, there's a whole tower block. Um, if we had a flat roof here, and, and you can imagine... I mean, I'll be, I'll be heading out the door. If somebody lowered somebody through the ceiling, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'll probably leave my iPad still. You look and finish off. But there would, have, there would have been a commotion. And it might even have been a bit comical, like a Del Boy kind of moment or something. I don't know what the equivalent nowadays is to Del Boy, because there's nobody funny nowadays. I'm not, really a, no, I'm not really a comedy guy, to be honest, because I'm not funny, so I'm, apparently. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really rate other people's comedy because I'm not funny. But it could have been funny. But once the dust had settled, this paralyzed man has come through, through the roof. He's laying on his mat before Jesus. And Jesus is apparently impressed by this commotion that's happened. More importantly, though, he's more impressed by their faith. Because they went to such lengths, all of that, because Jesus is in the room and they couldn't get in the room because so many people were there to be healed. They had faith in Jesus. To the amazement of the paralyzed man and his friends and to the disgust of the Pharisees we, we read, Jesus doesn't heal him first. He tells him, friend, your sins are forgiven. He didn't go there for that, I don't think. We don't read everything. This declaration by Jesus, it, it sparks off some, some muttering. Um, if it was in our culture, maybe some teeth kissing and, 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 and jeering and about, amongst these religious dons. Who does he really think he is? Who's this geezer talking about blasphemy? Who other than God alone can heal sins? But Jesus being Jesus, he can read their minds, he can hear their hearts, so he challenges them. Could you imagine if I was that good a preacher that I knew what Harriet was thinking right now? I see your heart, I hear your Imagine. Like, they didn't need to tell him. They could have not whispered a, 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 a whisper. Jesus hears our hearts. He knows you lot are bored right now. Stay there, isn't it? What would have been easier to forgive the man's sins? I didn't know my iPad was this heavy, you know. Woof. I've never held it, I don't think I've ever held it for this long. What would have been easier to forgive the man's sins or to tell him to get up and walk? Furthermore, know that I am the Son of Man, Jesus says. I have authority to forgive sins. Bold, big. Remember that, Jesus is saying. Me. Jesus is working brain on them, though. If he can cure the outward results of sins, remember, a lot of people 
would have fall, including the Pharisees and priests maybe, believed that people were diseased and crippled because of their sins. So if Jesus can cure the outward results of sins, then that must mean that Jesus can cure or forgive the sin itself. By asking these annoying Pharisees, which is easier, Jesus has backed them neatly into a corner. Anybody can say, yeah, 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 your sins are forgiven. Have a nice day. Be lucky, fella. Go on, off you go. Because there's no really real visual evidence that their sins have been forgiven. We, we know we, we become a new creation. There should be everybody. Back then, he, it, would, it would have been easy for him to just say, yeah, 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 you're forgiven. Bless you. Go, 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 go my son. Be like a Catholic box. Sorry, I should, maybe I shouldn't have said that. If there's any Catholics in the room, you're welcome. <laughs> Jesus loves you. The person can go about their business, and no one is none the wiser as to whether Jesus has actually healed this person, forgiven this person's sin, should I say. But to claim to be able to heal someone from something so visible and, and, and as far as they were concerned, dirty as leprosy, or in this case, paralysis with this guy, it would have been harder to kind of style that out. Because the guy's laying there, they know, he's a, they know he's a cripple, he can't move. But the man, he leaves, not on a stretcher. He's able to use the legs and arms that he was... We know, don't know how he was paralysis. I'm just going to assume it was everything because he was lower down the stretcher. He was lying there, not able to move. The end of verse 24, brothers and sisters, is the crutch of... The, that, was a, that was a good pun. Is the crutch of this scene or story. You didn't even get that pun, did you? No, you got it. All right, okay. I'm moving, I'm moving, I'm moving. Thank you, Harriet. Harriet's my G. From headquarters days. She always had my back. Always the one to laugh at my jokes. Bless you. Even with the tension rising and the questions coming from the Pharisees, Jesus doesn't back out of his claims to what he can do and, and who he says he is. He doubles down on them. Jesus tells the man, get up, take him out, go home. Doesn't back out. This instant healing proves that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. The people responded with, oh, we've, we've seen something remarkable here today. The once crippled man, he's got up and he's left praising God via Jesus for what he's done for him. He's healed. Family, are we praising God for what he's done for us? I'm asking myself, that's why I said family. We're all a family of God here. Amen. So we're all including this question, are we praising God for what he's done for us? Is that a normal, everyday part of our life and vocabulary and story and testimony? Forks and spoon, look at the time. Scene four and five. On the road at a banquet, and I think I've discovered why my iPad's turned off. There's some sort of magnet here, I think. Just saying, in case you wanted to know. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, 
complained to the, his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. These fishermen that Jesus recruited um, to follow him and be his disciples by the lake would have been young, teenage, uneducated men. When Mary would have been between 14 and 16. <clears throat> these, these guys would have been around that age, between 14 and 16. Peter was older, um, probably the oldest one of the, of the lot of them. But we always see, and I, I, I did some, uh, was it a conference? I can't remember what it was. I was teaching something at headquarters the other day. And um, I made this point, and I, and I Googled Peter, and I Googled James, I Googled all of the, a lot of the disciples, and you get these, to be honest, these really old bearded white guys. Because <laughs> um, apparently they knew what they looked like. Um, but actually they would have been a group of teenagers. Jesus called teenagers to change the world. <laughs> I'm not even going to go, that's not the sermon for today, but I could do. But I'm not going to. But they would have been young, teenage, uneducated men. It's assumed that Levi was probably a bit older, probably in his 20s when he started following Jesus, and would have been educated because he was a tax collector. And he would have been seen as scum, scummer than scummy, like, like just scum in society. He's employed by the Roman occupiers. That's like Russia win the war and are occupying um, Ukraine and somebody goes and works for the Russians to collect their tax. So he's taking money from his friends, his fellow countrymen, his family, to help cover the expenses of these invading foreigners that are in his land. And the Romans didn't care if the tax collectors were skimming a bit of extra on the top, as long as they got their allotted amount. So if he's supposed to collect £200 a week and for the Romans and he collects £400, they couldn't say no, because God would have got... Anyway, it would have ended pretty. Levi then would have been seen as a thief, a snake, working for and in bed with the enemy. And here comes Jesus. He notices Levi sitting by his horrid little booth. And like a lot of the time with Jesus, there's no long talking. Sometimes there was long talking. But a lot of the time, there's no long talking. Two words, follow me. Two simple, life-changing words. Levi responds, he gets up, he leaves everything, and he follows Jesus. Quick. Who knows what he took with him? But we said, we're told he, he left everything. We don't know what everything includes. He then goes one step further, he throws a banquet. A banquet. For his newfound teacher, leader, or master, we, we read that this banquet, there, there was a large group of tax collectors and, and others. To eat with somebody back then was a big deal. You, 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 you didn't eat with people unless you was in with those people. There was no unwelcomed, oh, you're here again, oh, God bless you. I felt like that yesterday at a barbecue. I felt unwanted, but I was tolerated. I'm looking at Ariel because it was her grandmother's birthday barbecue. Um, but sharing a meal with somebody, there's an assumed level of comf- comfort. Comfort them. That's too many syllables for Sunday morning. Comfortability. 
and peace with that person. Jesus has already rattled and bamboozled these Pharisees by claiming to be able to forgive sins. Now they've rocked up to see him jamming with sinners. Thieves and sinners as far as they're concerned. The people at this banquet, though, they're not bothered by the, the indignation or, or the disapproval of these religious moanies they might have looked at them as. They're jamming with Jesus, this God-man who, who can heal and cure and cast out demons, and he's willing to be in their sinful presence. These Pharisees don't mean nothing to him. To them, sorry. And as Jesus goes on to state, by answering the Pharisees' question of why are you eating and drinking with sinners, if our GP was working all the hours God sends and spending all that time with fit and healthy people and had nothing, there's nothing wrong with them at all, we're going to think that's a kind of a bit of a dumb use of their time and a waste of our taxes. In Jesus' spiritual metaphor here, the doctor is him, the patient's needing and, and willing to be are the sinner's the Pharisees, you know, are complaining about him eating with them, but the healing he's speaking about here is spiritual healing. It's from their sins. In the last verse of the, the, this, this chunk of passage, Jesus is plain speaking with them, I've not come to call the righteous. I've not come for you, man. But sinners to repentance. As always, he's worked brain on them and, and, and they move on to something new to moan about. The plane is landing. Uh, I've heard from the tower and I've got a clear runway. Amen? All right, we're still here, we're still here. Amen, amen, amen. Some of you are fading badly. They said, said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on and eat and drink. Jesus answered, can you make friends with the bridegroom? Can you, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable no one tears a piece of old garment to patch, sorry, a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say that old is better. Did you ever get that growing up? Like my mum would come into my bedroom and she'd, she'd try and work brain on me. She was good at it most of the time. But you know, that, you know when your mum would come in the room and she'd really try it? And she was actually in the wrong. And I would not work brain on her, but I guess I was working brain on her, but I'd never dare think I was. And I'd win the argument. And then she'd say, all right, yeah, but the other day, so then she would try and bring something else up to try and... Because she can't walk away empty-handed. Sometimes she had the belt in her hand. That's a different sermon. Instead of going about her business like she comes at me again, and that's what they're doing here. Okay, well, but so well, like John's disciples fast and pray often, and so does the Pharisees' disciples, but you and your people don't. You just carry on eating and drinking. Because the Pharisees, they would fast two days a week. I could spend the last few minutes that I don't have, probably, going into the Old Testament reasons 
uh, for fasting and a few examples we see in the New Testament and Jesus fasting in the wilderness. But that's the secondary point here, though. Jesus' main point in these closing verses is much bigger because Jesus' response, it looks back to the Old Testament and the prophet Isaiah. He wrote in chapter 62, No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephizbah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married as a young man marries a young woman. So will your builder marry you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So will your God rejoice over you. Jesus is suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his ultimate return are all yet to come. But the fact that he is here now with his disciples and those dining with him, that alone is worthy of celebration. The bridegroom is with his bride. There's no need for fasting for, for, you know, for the arrival of this expected Messiah. He's here. He's at the t- Could you imagine if Jesus was at the table with us? Physically, obviously he's there spiritually. Please don't quote me on, don't, don't, don't at me. Jesus, just to drive the point home, like he loves to do, he uses another analogy. And this time he's getting at the Pharisees. Even though Jesus' followers obeyed the Jewish laws, they didn't partake or subscribe to these extra sort of teachings that the Pharisees had added in. This two-day-a-week fasting thing. They now had a new and greater teacher and leader whose authority outweighed that of the Pharisees. And in this last chunk of our chunky chapter, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and its new version that we call the church that was still to be born. The old wineskin, it's a metaphor for the old covenant, the Jewish people following the law of Moses but not willing to believe in and follow Jesus. The new one that Jesus speaks of is the gospel, and the gospel is who? The gospel is Jesus, amen? Amen. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is that he's not trying to reform this Jewish religion into some new manifestation of God's kingdom. That can't work. It's square peg and round hole. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing about is so different from this old covenant and the, the, the way of doing things in the old that it needs to be and will be completely replaced by Jesus. There's one simple way that you can enter this kingdom. Again, nothing along with Jesus. Repent and believe. Amen? Amen. When the church was founded back then, it, 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 it was in Jerusalem, and, and it was in a sense a part or extension or byproduct of Judaism. Soon, though, the believers were run out of Jerusalem and with a few years, were per- they were being persecuted by the Jewish people. And so this new worldwide movement that we now refer to as Christianity is born. Jesus said his new wine cannot be poured out into the old wineskin wine of Ju- Judaism. The Jewish people literally went and proved him right by running them out of Jerusalem and starting the worldwide movement that we call mission, that we call Christianity. Amen? And we are a product of that. Okay, we're on the runway. Brothers and sisters, looking back over this chapter, there's lots of characters that we've encountered, and they encountered Jesus. 
this amazing book of Luke. I mean, how amazing is God's word? Where do we see ourselves? Is it in Peter, a believer in Jesus, but when Jesus found him by the lake, he wasn't a follower of Jesus. He had his faith restored and he became a fisher of people. Do you need to have your faith restored today? Are you fishing for people? Or are you still fishing for yourself? I don't want to drag that metaphor too far because it can get it can get confusing with the fishing metaphor because fish actually die when you take them out of the water. And that, yeah. Anyway, are you the man with leprosy, or the brother who had leprosy? Are you experiencing exclusion, isolation, hopelessness? Are you leading your life for elements of it that you need Jesus to come and make you clean from? Are you in that double-edged place where, where you have faith like the man with leprosy, but you also have doubt as well? If you are willing, he asked Jesus. What are you doubting that Jesus is willing to do in your life today? The paralyzed man... What's stopping us from living a life like the paralyzed man in which we're praising God so much that people around us in our lives are amazed and they praise God with us? Is there anything stopping us from doing that that we need to take to God? Levi, are we living a life in a way that we know isn't pleasing to God? If Jesus met us face to face right now and said, Come, follow me. What thought, thing, person would come to our mind, maybe, that we can't let go of to follow him, truly follow him, give our whole life to him? Or are we like the Pharisees, maybe, you know, not fully, maybe partially, maybe like a little 2%, living a religious life, ticking all the boxes? What old wineskin are we holding on to that just can't work with Jesus' new wineskin, but we're holding on to it? knowing that it doesn't work. I'm going to give us a minute or two just to spend some time with God. And if none of you can relate to those characters, if you're all good, that's between you and God in itself, then spend some time praying for somebody who you know needs that prayer. A couple of minutes, and then if you could come and Pray for us. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.